Sup, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. Matt and I had the immense pleasure of sitting down with Chris Belcher, the man behind Join Market, and uh, the recent design implementation of CoinSwap, which he is currently working on. And uh, he is being supported by the Human Rights Foundation. News just dropped a few minutes ago before recording this ad. This news dropped after we recorded this episode, so we did not cover that. Uh, in the episode, but uh, we did talk about dev funding towards the end, and it is uh, uh, very encouraging to see that the Human Rights Foundation has stepped up and provided Chris with a grant to work on this uh, coin swap implementation specifically. So kudos to HRF for putting the team on their back here. This episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by our good friends at the Cash they're helping you do many things. They're helping you stack sats, send sats, receive sats, sell sats, if you so please. On top of that, they're doing uh, incredible things on the banking front. You can now use Cash App as your bank account. It has a uh, an account number and a routing number. You can start getting your paychecks direct deposited into the Cash App, and it's becoming a Neo Bank, a Neo Bank where you can uh, send your paychecks there have them directly deposited, start stacking sats. Then also, if you want to, if you're if you're a stock picker out there, seems to be a lot of stock pickers out there these days, stock market going crazy, going mad. And uh, it's uh, if you want to do that, Cash App Investing is letting you stack slivers of stocks. Okay, You don't have to buy a whole stock. If uh, your your favorite stock has become out of your reach to, buy, to purchase a whole of that stock because of this crazy... Fed-induced stock market bonanza, uh, you can buy as little as $1 via Cash App Investing. And because Cash App's directly connected to your bank account, or like I described earlier, it is your bank account, there's no four to five day waiting periods. You can start investing today. As always, or before we get to the as always, uh, Cash App Investing is a subsidiary square member SIPC. Now, as always, when you download the app, if you haven't done done it yet, if you're listening to this podcast, you're in America, you haven't done it yet, what the hell are you waiting for? Use the code STACKINGSATS. It's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10 upon sign up. And then $10 is going to go to our great friends at Owls Lacrosse in Chicago doing incredible things uh, in the west side and south side of Chicago, building uh, a lacrosse program to help instill leadership values and, and teamwork into the children of Chicago Owls lacrosse, not owls lacrosse, not that dirtbag owl. Owls. My uh, my owl that sits outside my window. He made a Twitter account last night, and so he's going to be scoring these these owl calls from here on out. So we'll see how I do. Uh, download the Cash App. Enjoy this episode with Chris Belcher, and congrats to Chris for the grant from the HRF. Huge, uh, huge, huge news. It's going to make Bitcoin better. Take care. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here. 
on a lovely Tuesday afternoon. Uh, despite all the madness going on in the world, I'm very excited for this conversation. Uh, it's a privacy-heavy conversation we're about to have. This is a topic that we talk a lot about here on TFTC. We've got Matt O'Dell with me, the privacy nut. What's going this on, is Matt? It's going to be good. I'm excited. And, and we're joined by Chris Belcher, who recently released uh, a design implementation for a coin swap, which is an, uh, not a new idea, but the first implementation that's come to market. And we're going to talk a lot about that. Chris, thank you for joining us. Hello there. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate uh, you taking some time uh, to come talk about this. Uh, we've we've talked about CoinSwap on this podcast uh, last week after you dropped the implementation. So uh, I guess we should just dive right into it. We, You and I have been talking uh, since before this recording and have a little bit of structure laid out for this conversation, which isn't typical here on TFTC, but um, we're speaking to uh, what I would deem somebody who's very knowledgeable in this space. And we're going to learn a lot about coin swaps. So before we get into coin swaps, Chris, sort of uh, how did you get into Bitcoin and, and why are you focused on privacy? Uh, well, I, I've always liked uh, coding and programming and uh, cryptography. I remember reading about PGP and the crypto wars from ages and ages ago. And uh, it's actually kind of funny story. When I was quite young, I used to be involved in, a, there was an old video game. I, don't, I think people still play it called RuneScape. And there was a thing where you could have in-game items and trade them. Back then, people would trade for PayPal. And obviously, that didn't work very well because of all the chargeback, chargebacks and you'd find out each other's real names and that kind of thing. And um, then when I when I came across Bitcoin, I thought, hey, you know, it's obvious. It's really good for video games, right? That's what it's for. And then the more I got into it, the more I read of how useful it is for other reasons. And uh, I've always been interested in history. So I thought, yeah, it would be useful in, you know, uh, the Weimar Republic in Germany, that kind of thing, hard money. Um, yeah, I just went from there. And I looked at what are the problems around Bitcoin and uh, got interested in privacy and uh, validation, like the Electron personal server is all about validation as well. So, yeah, that's my story pretty much. Yeah, I mean, thank you for all the work that you've done to help uh, improve personal validation and and privacy overall, which join market specifically and now um, coin swap, at least your, your implementation of a coin swap, which you're still working on, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's in the design stages right now. And so I guess let's let's help uh, the audience understand what a coin swap is. When did the idea come to market, and and how I guess your design would work once once it's finally implemented. So a coin swap is I'll deal with those things one by one. A, a coin swap is a privacy protocol, so it's like like CoinJoin but something else. Uh, the point of it is to improve privacy in Bitcoin and fungibility. And the way coin swaps actually what they do is they break the transaction graph. So you can imagine now when we look on the blockchain and there's a transaction that spends uh, money's going from address A to address B, coin swap can make it so that the coins, like the, the actual ownership, ends up on a totally different address, I know, address Z, address X, which is entirely unrelated. Um, and that's obviously really useful if you're using coin swap, but it's also useful for other people if there's some other user who's never even heard of coin swap who just makes a normal transaction, they'll have their privacy improved as well because anyone who wants to analyze the blockchain, some kind of adversary, they'll always have to consider that maybe they see this transaction, they think, well, maybe a coin swap happened. So it will add a huge amount of doubt, I hope, and 
uh, will make their analysis much harder and thereby improve privacy and fungibility. Uh, so the way CoinSwap is kind of, what, what it works is there's two, we've got Alice and Bob, like two entities and they swap coins with each other. So Alice's coins ends up with Bob and Bob's coins ends up with Alice. Um, it's, it's actually quite an old idea, like it's from 2013, uh, it was invented by Greg Maxwell. Around the same, it was about a month or two after CoinJoin. Uh, so what was the other thing? You were saying, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot the other rest of your question. So I, uh, like how, how would your design work uh, oh, okay. once implemented? Yeah. So, so, it's... so CoinSwap, it's, it's an old idea. Um, and, uh, but it has loads of, the original des Greg Maxwell's design had loads of unsolved problems. Um, so, uh, so my design is basically solving these problems one by one. Like it, the the title is is coin swap, but there's loads of other building blocks in there that are necessary to make, really make it work well. Uh, so, for example, in the original coin swap scheme, you had Alice and Bob would swap just one coin. So Alice would give ten bitcoins to Bob, and Bob would give ten bitcoins to Alice. And that means if there's an adversary who knows Alice's ten bitcoins, she can this adversary can search the blockchain for somewhere else where there's 10 bitcoins and they'd find Bob's 10 bitcoins, then it would be easy. Okay, so these 10 bitcoins went here and these bitcoins went back. So the amount would be a privacy leak. Um, so my solution to that in the design is to have multi-transaction coin swaps. And that would be where Alice gives 10 bitcoins to Bob and Bob gives multiple coins back to Alice. So he gives her like two bitcoins, three bitcoins and five bitcoins. And those three together add up to 10. And then if our adversary is searching the entire blockchain, he'll never find one coin which is worth 10 bitcoins uh, so that attack will be will be fixed um another problem in the, in the original design is there's only two of these parties so even though someone observing the blockchain doesn't know where the coins went bob does like if you're alice you have to trust bob though that they're not that they're not going to spy on you um so in my design that's solved by routing coin swaps so alice would do a coin swap with bob and then bob will do a coin swap with not someone else charlie and Charlie will do a coin swap with Dennis, and then Dennis will do a coin swap back to Alice. Uh, and then Alice would have her coins made anonymous, and all three of those those other parties, Bob, Charlie, and Dennis, they'd have to collude um, if they wanted to figure out where all the coins actually went. So rooted coin swap kind of spreads out the trust in that way. Um, then uh, another thing in the design is having a liquidity market. So that's just like in join markets where um, Alice, Alice would pay for the coin swaps actually to happen. So for these, Bob and Charlie and so on, they'd, they'll just hang around, they'll run a server all day, and they'll say, you can coin swap with me in return for a small fee, like a few Satoshi or something. It's exactly the same way it works in join market. But instead of coin joins, you get coin swaps. And the effect there, it means that if you're Alice, if you just you have a wallet, you can do a coin swap whenever you want. You just press a button, and a coin swap for your amount, you know, it doesn't have to be 10 Bitcoin, it can be 0.0 whatever, any amount you want, it just happens straight away. The liquidity is always there because Alice is paying for it. Um, another idea that's in the design is uh, the way coin swaps work is they have two of two multi-sigs and they, they would be a bit more obvious on the blockchain. Like there are some two of two multi-sigs on the blockchain, but they, most people use single sig. And there's a technology which didn't exist back in 2013 called multi-party ECDSA computation. And that's a technique where you can, you essentially create a um, a single signature, like a single ECDSA signature, but actually it's a multi-sig. So actually Alice and Bob hold 
one private key each and it acts like a multi-sig, but when it's actually mined into a block on the blockchain, it looks just like a single sig. And that would massively improve the anonymity because there's like most people use single sigs. Mm-hmm. And uh, then these coin swaps would just have a big anonymity set. Um, so yeah, those are the building blocks, what were they? The multi-transactions, the routing, liquidity market, um, and multi, multi-party ECDSA computation. And pay swap, right? I think that's what you Yeah, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. So another thing is um, you can do a, a pay swap, a coin join into a coin swap. Because uh, so coin swaps break the transaction graph heuristics and pay joins break the, break the common input ownership heuristic. Um, so I don't know how, maybe I'll, maybe I'll explain that for your listeners, that a transaction graph is just that idea that if a coin goes from A to B, then it actually went from A to B. Um, and yeah, coin swap would make the coin end up in Z. And the common input ownership heuristic is this idea that if there's a transaction on Bitcoin, it has multiple inputs, then uh, you, like an adversary, anyone analyzing the blockchain usually assumes that all the inputs are owned by the same person. And this assumption is broken in coin join, in pay join or any other kind of coin join. Uh, so, and, and those two assumptions are really important for analysis. And if we can break them, then we gain a lot of privacy. So diving more into like the the actual function of how the swap works. So you said Alice and Bob each have a private key that controls the multi-sig. How do they do the exchanging of the addresses that they're each sending their coins to? How does that work out? Uh, so, right. So, uh, yeah. So how coin swap actually technically work? It's, it's not too far from lightning. So if you understand lightning, how payment channels work, then coin swap isn't too different. So you have Alice... Um, has coins and she sends them to a two of two multi-sig where Alice and Bob each hold one private key. But before she actually broadcasts the transaction, she gets a refund. She gets another transaction which spends spends from the multi-sig and it gives the coins back to her. But those coins have a they have a smart contract. They have conditions on them. And that, that, that smart contract is either the coins go back to Alice after some time, like three days, say, or the coins will go to Bob if Bob reveals a hash pre-image. If he reveals a value x such that hash of x is equal to this thing in the transaction. And then Bob does has the same setup but mirrored. So Bob will send his coins to a two of two multi-sig, and he has a similar contract where um, after some time he'll get his money back, or Alice will get the money if she reveals a hash pre-image. Um, so okay, so what's happened there? We're in a situation where Alice and Bob both get their money back if they wait for a timeout or the other person gets the money, like the coins are swapped if they know the pre-image. Um, so we're in that situation. Now let's say the pre-image is revealed. One of the, say Bob starts with it and he reveals it. That means both parties will get their money back straight away. They just reveal a pre-image and they get it. And they don't have to trust anyone else. It, so you could say the money is basically in their possession, like the smart contract is filled. What they do next, because they want to save time and they want to save minor fees, instead of actually making the transaction, they just give the private keys to each other. What happens then is Alice has her coins in a two of two multi-sig where she has both the private keys and Bob has his coins in a two of two multi-sig where he has both the private keys. Um, so in that way, we, we just have this situation where the coins are swapped, but there's no trust involved. That Alice can't steal Bob's coins and Bob can't steal Alice's coins. In the same way as CoinJoin, so that no one, CoinJoin is also non-custodial. You can never lose your coins doing it if it's correctly implemented. Um, so by analogy of Lightning, if 
you could understand this, that it's as if Alice opened the channel with Bob and then pushed all her money in the payment channel to Bob. And then they did a cooperative close to send the money to Bob. Uh, exactly at the same time, Bob opened the channel of Alice, pushed all his money in the channel to Alice, and then they closed the channel. And they did this at the same time so that they can't steal from each other. Hmm. And so... Yeah, hopefully that's, that's clear. If this is... No, it's very clear. If this, is, But one thing to sort of really just like hone in on why this is uh, a different solution to coin joining and lightning in general. Like why would somebody create this setup instead of just like a lightning channel? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, it's a big reason why it's been so long since 2013, why people realize this is useful. Uh, so I think the biggest difference is coin swap is inherently on chain. That if you want to pay someone with lightning, they have to actually use lightning. They have to give you a lightning invoice. But if you want to pay someone with a coin swap transaction, you just pay to a regular Bitcoin address. So anyone who accepts Bitcoin today on a Bitcoin address will accept coin swap. Um, so it means once the software is written, it can be adopted unilaterally. So any, I don't know, an exchange or some kind of any merchant pay who accepts Bitcoin, they'll, they'll just take coin swaps with no, there's no way they can censor it. There's no way they could stop it in the way that they could they could, in theory, just say, okay, we're not going to accept Lightning because we think it's too private. That won't be possible with CoinSwap. Um, another difference is that CoinSwap and Lightning solve their liquidity issues in a different way. So in Lightning, these channels are open for forever, essentially, and they have uh, their, there's all kind of issues of inbound liquidity and channel rebalancing, that you can only send an amount of money that is actually, that there's a valid route all the way to the person you want to send to. And that generally means it's limited to small amounts. Um, but with CoinSwap, it has this liquidity market that's like CoinJoin, where Alice pays CoinSwap fees straight away up front. It means she could do any amount um, because the liquidity is always there. Like the liquidity will be paid for straight away. Um, so the example I've been using is in Join Market right now, you can, or anyone can create CoinJoins up to 200 Bitcoins. Like it's a ridiculously big value. Uh, and it, you know, it costs a few thousand Satoshis or something. Uh, and we can imagine, we can expect the same thing will happen with CoinSwap, that people could do any amount of, do a CoinSwap for any Bitcoin amount if they wanted. So that's another difference, is that they deal with liquidity in a different way. Um, and uh, another difference is, um, oh, I forgot to mention it, in the design there's this idea of fidelity bonds. Um, and that's a way of, that solves a few different problems, but uh, uh, one of the problems it solves is Sybil attacks. So in in Join Market or in CoinSwap or in any kind of privacy solution, you could you could have an attack when an adversary makes lots lots of fake bots, makes lots of fake other people who pretend they want to do pretend they want to improve their privacy, but actually try and spy on everyone else. And if if you're doing CoinJoin or CoinSwap and everyone else in your CoinJoin is actually one person, they can spy on you. And fidelity bonds are a way to avoid this, um, where they, you can you can do the mathematics of it, and it would actually cost like loads of money, like millions of dollars, it would have to be locked up for a civil attack to be successful. And um, uh, CoinSwap would have like my design would use fidelity bonds to make these civil attacks very expensive. And Lightning, Lightning, I mean Lightning doesn't need to do this. It doesn't. Um, you know, Lightning's purpose is to have these payments. Like, it's not aiming to solve civil attacks, but they, that's another difference between them. Ba uh, basically, like, a fidel the fidelity bond idea makes it so 
you have this in join market. Let's talk about join market in, yeah. in case of Fidelity Bonds because it exists already. Um, you have these makers that are posting these open offers to 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 coin join your funds with, um, and it becomes cheaper for you to have all of your funds in a single maker instance than to spread it out. Right, the way the math works out. Yeah, that's right. So the, these makers they they essentially have a, a message and announcement that says you can create a coin join with me up to this amount of bitcoins I have, and it will only cost you I don't know 0.1%, whatever some number I'm just making up that. Um, and that means anyone can create a coin join like for cheap. They just pay for the liquidity. But an attack there is that an adversary could make loads of these bots. They could make 10 bots or 20 bots, and they all say you can make a coin join with me for really cheap. And if you're unlucky enough to choose one of those 10 bots to make your coin joins, and all they make up everyone else in your coin join except for you, then they can spy on you easily because they know the inputs and the outputs. And fidelity bonds, uh, what they are is they're a way to provably sacrifice value. So what, what these makers would do is they'd send their Bitcoins to a time locks address. Um, Bitcoins would be there, I don't know, say locked up for one year. And the value of the fidelity bond goes as squared. So V squared. So like if the, if the maker sacrifices 10 Bitcoins, their value will be 10 times 10, which is 100. But if they sacrifice 20 Bitcoins, it will be 20 times 20, which is for 400, right? So they have... They have, a, they have an incentive to lump all their coins that they want to sacrifice into one bot. And it means if someone wants to attack the system, if they want to create 10 bots, then it will cost them much more because the squared, because this effect of squaring, to make 10 bots, they'd ha all of those things will be reduced by a, a square factor. Like, like for example, if, you, if they had 10 Bitcoins they want to sacrifice, if they put it all into one bot, their value would be 10 times 10, which is 100. But if they split it, split up those 10 Bitcoins into 10 bots, which had one Bitcoin each, the value would be one squared plus one squared plus one squared, all the way to 10. So the total value would be 10 instead of 100, which means someone who's behaving honestly, who just wants to earn money without spying on anyone else, are going to have a huge advantage because their fidelity bond value is 100, 100 Bitcoins and the civil attacker's fidelity bond value is only 10. Um, yeah, and yeah, that's the way the math works to make fidelity bonds really expensive. No, and it's it's beautiful too because it the way it disincentivizes civil attacks, it also incentivizes long term holders to engage in fidelity bonds because yeah, because they're not going to spend their coins anyway. If they were just sitting in a hardware wallet doing nothing, you may as well put them in this. So there's lots of coins out there, I, I assume, um, to do this. Better privacy arguably makes. Bitcoin as a network overall more more valuable too. So yeah. locking it. Yeah, and fidelity. you get money for doing it. Like you you don't have to risk your if you're like a hodler, you, you don't have to risk your bitcoins. You always have the private keys, but you'd make a small amount of coin join fees or coin swap fees just coming in, like uh like for just for running this server. Uh, it's a bit like in routing that in lightning routing, you get paid to route other people's transactions. That kind of thing. You get money for for not risking your bitcoins, which is nice. Another thing that, that I should mention that Fidelity Bonds solve is the old coin swap design from 2013 had a DOS problem, uh, like a, an issue where Alice and Bob, what can happen is, so Alice would, Alice would send her coins into the multisig and Bob could just disappear if he was trying to troll, if he was trying to attack the system, he could disappear and okay, Alice would get her money back, but she'd have to waste minor fees and she'd have to waste time. 
Uh, and if Bob, if Bob could keep doing this, like he could, okay, I disappeared once, and then this time I really, really will do a coin swap bow, I've disappeared again. If he does that indefinitely, it would just make the system stop working. And fidelity bonds are also a solution for this, because if, suppose Bob is this attacker, if he has a, he'll need a fidelity bond for Alice to coin swap with him. But if he does disappear, then Alice will just refuse to coin swap with him again, with that fidelity bond. And it would mean someone attacking the system in this way would ha also have to spend lots of money. So there's that problem of who goes first, who actually puts their money into a multi-sig first. Um, they'd be vulnerable to this attack. And the fidelity bonds can solve that. So that is, would that be more like a, a DDoS attack? As yeah, to a yeah exactly, attack? a DOS yeah. attack, denial of service. And if you notice in, in Lightning, they solve it in a different way that what happens generally in Lightning is people with wallets, they open a channel to someone, like you might have a wallet on your phone, you open a channel to some merchant. The merchant isn't putting up any money normally. They just accept your channel, and if you send money to them, that's great. But if not, that's also fine. I haven't wasted any money. And that's also kind of why it can be hard to get inbound liquidity, because for you to get inbound liquidity, someone has to open a channel to you and put their own money in the channel. And if you disappeared, like they could be thinking, if this person disappears, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just waste minor fees for nothing. Um, uh, so that, that comes into the liquidity thing as well. But fidelity bonds and liquidity work together in that way. Um, yeah, but potentially in Lightning, I've seen on the mailing list, there are a few ideas for somehow maybe having some kind of liquidity market for people can buy inbound liquidity. Um, but I, I don't know. I haven't read too much into this. So yeah. Oh, so from my understanding of the spec, I mean, this seems like it's strictly better than CoinJoin, and I'm trying to understand if I'm missing something here. Like, if you're successful with this coin swap implementation, um, would there be any reason for someone to use Join Market, or does does that does that usage just move over to Coin Swap? Yeah, I think I hope that it would move over to Coin Swap. I don't. Um, there's no. It, as far as I can see, it's better in every way. So the transactions are actually invisible. The coin swap transactions look like regular transactions. And join market transactions are really obvious. They have all the equal amounts. Uh, they also use much more block space, like join market transactions. One of them is, is maybe about 10 times bigger than a, a regular transaction. And also, people don't do just one. You do coin joins it again and again and again. So it costs loads of minor fees. There's the, yeah, there's all kinds of advantages. Uh, the only advantage to... CoinJoin uh, that I can see is that in CoinSwap, it takes a little bit longer. So you have to broadcast this transaction, wait for it to be confirmed. And once it once it's confirmed that this contract is safe to do. But with CoinJoin, you don't have to wait for any confirmations. You just talk to these other people you're doing a CoinJoin with, and you create the CoinJoin and broadcast it. And once it's confirmed, that's that. Uh, so in that way, CoinJoin could be a bit faster. However, there is, I was thinking about this, like imagining Suppose you're a Bitcoin user and you want to trade Bitcoins real life in person for cash. A thing you could do with CoinSwap is you send your coins into a CoinSwap, the contract first, before you actually meet anyone. And once the, the thing is confirmed, you can go and meet the person and you get the cash. And then only then you make the next transaction, like the settlement transaction. And you don't have to wait anything. It'll be broadcast straight away. And once it's confirmed, then the, the cash is transferred. So I think in practice, it won't actually be too this slowness thing won't be too much of a problem. And so, and so let's dive into like the, the on-chain heuristics that are 
currently used to attempt to de-anonymize people. And one thing we talk a lot about, Matt and I, and just shooting the shit. Or like, is there is there a threshold at which uh, a number of people coin joining would provide a sufficient amount of privacy for the rest of the network just by destroying heuristics that chain surveillance companies use? It seems like, and and with equal inputs and, and coin joins, it's pretty easy to pick them out on chain. And it seems like the way coin swap works, just because it's two or two or two or three multi-sig, it makes it much harder to follow uh, these heuristic that chain surveillance companies use. Because again, you have to assume that it isn't a coin swap. So is this threshold for like perceived better privacy for the rest of the network extremely low once coin swaps implemented? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Like how much percentage of people do you need using something like this to make all the heuristics stop working? And I, I can't imagine it's very high. Like, Suppose we said 5%, that means one in every 20. It means one in every 20 transactions actually breaks the heuristic, and that seems like it could be enough. But another thing we might need is that they need to be these... By the way, this also applies to pay join, uh, like when people are pay joining with a merchant, that would also work. But a thing that would need to be there is these transactions probably have to be quite equal throughout the economy. So you could imagine if... I don't know, if there's some traders who only ever transact to exchanges, and if they never use any of this tech, and then there's some other, you know, say, people who do online gambling, if they always use this tech, then you could, you could imagine it will only break the heuristic in the gambling point of view, and uh, you know, in the gambling sector of the economy, and never in the exchanges. So you'd probably want the entire economy or uh, loads of it to, to use this technology, and not just one part. Yeah, I guess that's a good segue into what would incentivize these exchanges to do so i know bull bitcoin is the only exchange up in canada that i can think of that actually coin joins for their users um before sending funds out is there any economic advantage to doing this for exchanges that would incentivize yeah, only them? only if their customers demand it i guess but they uh i don't know if you saw there was a recent article just yesterday by rusty russell who was making the point that loads of these exchanges just make their money from pumping shit coins, like telling their customers to buy altcoins. Um, and then they, they're not so interested in privacy or anything like that. So uh, for me, that seems kind of grim. I don't think exchanges are really our, you know, not, they're not our friends. It's just they're not, they have other things to think about. They're trying to make a profit or whatever. Uh, so users, if they're interested, they have to do it themselves. And um, that then it's useful with CoinSwap, how it can be adopted unilaterally. But if you have a wallet which supports these coin swap transactions, you just send to an exchange and they don't have to change anything. They don't have to even know you're doing it. They don't have to update anything and it just works. Um, in a way that it doesn't work with Lightning. With Lightning, the exchange, you make a Lightning wallet. You probably will, you know, might the next has a Lightning wallet, but it might take a while. They might not do it. Um, so who knows? Yeah, we saw. Uh... We saw the downfalls of these exchanges, or one exchange particularly focusing on shit coins yesterday when you have like a 5% pipe price pop and Coinbase just completely uh, yeah. shuts down because they can't handle it because they haven't fixed their exchange because they've been focused on adding shit coins. The other thing is, I mean, it's it'll be a lot more difficult for exchanges to to flag deposits that are coin swap, it appears, than if they were with flagging coin joins it's it's pretty obvious on chain 
yeah, the equal amounts really give it away. And yeah, that's definitely another advantage. Yeah, because you want to be able to know if somebody is sending it from a coin swap or, say, a Blockstream green wallet, right? Because that's what yeah, Blockstream and green uses too, too. The hope is that we, because, yeah, because you're saying if Blockstream green uses multisig, but the hope is that these coin swap, uh, the, the, you know, the solution, oh, yeah. it would use multi-party computa ECDSA computation. So, so nobody would tell. even know that it's a multi-sig. It would just look yeah. like a single sig. Yeah. And then nothing. Then as if you design it properly, then nothing really would give it away. That's the hope. Yeah. And so how far along are you in uh, actually writing out the code that'll, that'll make this implementation functional? Uh, right now I'm kind of designing the exact details of how the contracts should work and all the step-by-step -step of like first Alice makes a connection to Bob and then asks Bob for one of his public keys and then Alice makes this transaction and then they wait. Like there's all that, that all of those steps which you have there kind of right um, to make it work and then I'll start coding. Also, I've got a plan to uh, do it in, I mean, maybe it'll happen, maybe not, to do it in Rust because um, it seems there's a advantages to that language and so I've been learning a bit of Rust right now uh, and one good thing about that is I'd, I, uh, this would be nice if it was a library that can be easily incorporated into other wallets. So it's not like there's a whole wallet which is called the CoinSwap wallet. It's just that any other wallet, Electrum or Blockstream Green or anything like that, they could take a library which would be, you know, like compiled, like which Rust can do, and then they can, uh, the user would see a checkbox and they'd like turn on CoinSwap or turn off CoinSwap. And once it's turned on, then the 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 wallet calls the library and a CoinSwap just happens. And uh, and that would be great. And then just it'll be really usable people just use the same wallets they already use yeah that would be huge and that's one uh topic of conversation we actually had last week is the sort of standardization of these wallet softwares across the industry that's uh, something that's been a bit of pain in the ass up to this point is is different wallet creators using different software and being incompatible with each other so standardizing this yeah. Out of the gate would be awesome. And finger Or even non-privacy things like seed phrases. Excuse me? Even non-privacy things are not standardized across wallets, like seed yeah. phrases. They, Electrum has a different seed phrase to hardware wallets or something like that. Yeah, it's what a uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin recovery wallet, recovery.com. What's Yeah, that's no, right, a database of all of them. Well, you know that old joke of uh, the great thing about standards is there's so many of them. <laughs> right and especially when you start throwing in like the hardware wallets compared to the yeah, software yeah. and paper wallets it's and then the lnd light wallet has a another seed phrase which has a wallet birthday it's a nice feature but then no other wallet has it i think ultimately the only thing the network enforces is that the transaction format will be the same and everything else could change yeah um one thing we didn't touch on here uh, which I kind of just blurted out uh, is is like wallet fingerprinting, right? So when we're talking about stuff like PaySwap and CoinSwap uh, providing basically cover for other people's transactions, if their wallet is is very obvious in in these unique characteristics that allow you to fingerprint that they're using a certain wallet, then those transactions don't get any cover from from these type of techniques, right? Yeah, that's right. That they. Bitcoin transactions have a lot of, uh, they have some data in them, like there's end sequence numbers and whether RBF is enabled or disabled or uh, the end lock time. Like there's a 
there's a wiki page on it. There's loads of things that you can edit in a transaction. And probably um, there'll be something I do eventually for CoinSwap is analyze a lot of wallets like Electrum and Blockstream Green and all that things and try and figure out exactly what they do. I mean, I didn't invent, I think um, I saw this on some other podcasts, I think. But then you have these, the CoinSwap wallets or any other wallets, say 10% of the time behaves intentionally like Electrum and then 20% of the time behaves like some other wallets and then 30% of the time behaves like Bitcoin Core. Um, and then... Uh, then that should hopefully that that should be a way to work around this fingerprinting thing because that's also done outside of Bitcoin. I've read it's done with browser fingerprinting. You know, browsers have different things like whether JavaScript enabled or disabled, what your operating system is, your browser version, your screen size. Uh, and then I've heard of some idea for writing a privacy browser which fakes those fakes those um, those features, but in a different way. So it says, like, now I'm going to pretend to be Linux with this version with this screen size, and then a bit later it says, now I'll pretend to be Mac with this version and this screen size. So they do the same kind of thing. There's a lot of controversy with that with the Tor browser, right? Because the Tor browser uh, tries to normalize all those things among all of their users uh, in terms of screen size is one of the big things. But uh, because they do that, it's it's easier to spot when someone's using Tor browsers specifically. Yeah, that's right. But I, I think the, isn't the thing with Tor is they, it's obvious if you're using Tor, because like if you go through a Tor exit node, then your IP address will be on the list of Tor exit nodes. Yeah. And if you're going to an, a, an onion address, then obviously you can only go use Tor with those. So Tor doesn't have the property that you can hide that you're actually using Tor in a way that CoinSwap or PageRoom does. It's so fascinating how how many variables go into protecting privacy on the internet yeah, and that's right. with Bitcoin. Uh, every leak is uh, every leak adds up. Right, like transaction broadcasting, trying to delay that, and is is one aspect. The P two P network, how you how your node connects and relays those transactions. There's so many variables that go into play, and you've been around Bitcoin for quite a while building software on top of it and aiming towards creating better privacy. How, how has privacy evolved since you've been around and, and do you think it's getting better? Do you think we're in a race oh, against yeah, time? Absolutely getting better. Like I remember when, uh, so, you know, we have this, we have this kind of, you know, obvious thing that, uh, to have really good privacy, you basically have to use a full node or you have to use something which downloads every single block and then scans it on like locally to find your addresses. And, and if you, if you do it another way, like with an Electrum server or, or something else like that, then uh, then the, the server will figure out what your addresses are. So this realization was, as far as I could tell, completely unknown back when I started. Just no one even realized that's a thing. Like people are thinking about coin joins or, or, or that kind of thing. And there was, um, I, don't, I don't remember finding anywhere, maybe there was somewhere, but I didn't see it, that people realizing that, hold on, we need full nodes if you, if you want to have privacy. So just just from that, like that's just one example of the of the huge progress I think we've made in this few years. Yeah. And so, are you confident in, in the ability for Bitcoin to provide sufficient fungibility and privacy for all users in the future? Because this is uh, like are the yeah, Monero. I mean, I, I'd hope the so. Like, that's what I'm in the business of. That's what I'm in the business of doing. But it's hard, you know. It's you. Uh, Oh, whatever, you know, I'm sure people invent stuff. There's a thing right now that, I, as far as I can tell, there's no real way to have a lightweight private wallet synchronization. So we know Wasabi Wallet, it uses those client-side block filters, 
where there's these uh, filters, and then you only download the blocks that are related to you. But that's actually not very lightweight. So if you did that, uh, where Bitcoin Core has some code which does it, and those filters for the whole blockchain, they add up to a huge amount of data, like four gigabytes or five gigabytes. Uh, and that's not, if you had a wallet where you had to download four gigabytes, it's not really a lightweight wallet. It's huge. Uh, and the reason Wasabi gets around that is their filters only contain Bash32 addresses. So their filters are much smaller because those addresses are quite rare on the blockchain. But those filters wouldn't work for a lightweight wallet if they had all the kinds of addresses, ETSH and we, addresses. And, and we want to see like Bech32 usage go up too. So Yeah, exactly. When, when, as usage goes up, then those filters will get bigger too. Uh, so right now, there's no real solution for lightweight wallet sync. Um, but you know, maybe one of the listeners can can invent one, right? It's a, you know, it's all progress goes incrementally, doesn't it? Yeah, no, that's one thing I say a lot. Like everybody wants this stuff out of the box right away, and it just doesn't happen that way. Especially yeah. the way Bitcoin was designed at launch, it's going to take time. And luckily, people like you are focused on this and bringing software to market that that does make it better. Um, that that gets us to a point where the shitty used Monero fans uh, shut up at some point. Sean. And even Monero isn't that great. Like I sometimes rant a lot about this because there's like loads of privacy problems with Monero. No, I mean not loads, but they, it's obviously better than Bitcoin if it didn't have conjuring and stuff. But they um, there's a, a thing you can do with with Monero if you make repeated transactions. So Monero has those decoys, doesn't it? It takes the the decoy transaction inputs and adds them to your transaction, makes a ring signature, so nobody can tell which is the re which are the real inputs. So that's only if, if you take one transaction in isolation. If you did 10 transactions, so if you had a Monero, uh, say someone accepting donations in Monero, and you made 10 donations to them, you know 10 of their inputs. And when they go to later spend them, you have much more uh, You have much more information, um, maybe easier if I drew it, but you, you, you can do an intersection. You can figure out, because you have 10 or 20 or however many times you paid them, you have much more information you, you can use to take away their decoys. Uh, that's to talk about it. Maybe I can... Uh, link it or something, but they it's interesting that even Monero like Monero is better, but there's still attacks you can do And yeah, the other you is the, the scalability is way uh, Way lower so you the, I've done a calculation that if Monero was doing the same amount of transactions that Bitcoin's doing today Then the full nodes would not be possible to run on a regular desktop. It'll just use too much CPU So something like Monero is inherently limited like yeah, you'll you'll get better privacy But what's the point if, uh, if a thousand times less people use it? Yeah, and you, you expanded on this topic with Stefan when you were on his yeah, podcast that's recently. Right, yeah. Um so go check that out if you have freaks. But um one one thing in relation to coin swap that we haven't touched on yet, a couple things actually, is how does it affect like how do how how expensive are the fees and if there's a lot of transactions, how does it affect uh fees and then uh moving forward, let's say something like Schnorr and then Taproot gets implemented, does this change the implementation at all? Oh, that's a good question. So the fees, um, so obviously it's a bit more expensive than just doing a regular transaction because they're like as cheap as they can be, they have a size, but coin swaps would be much cheaper for the same amount of privacy than uh, equal output coin joins. So for example, in join market, there's one coin join is about 10, 10 times the size of a regular transaction and users don't just do one coin join. So the, the join market Tumblr script by default does about 10 coin joins. And each of, the, each of those transactions are huge. So uh, it's already using a huge amount of block space there. 
and the privacy isn't even as good as what CoinSwap, how good CoinSwap would be. So if you work out on a per-privacy per basis how much minor fees you need to spend to get a certain amount of privacy, then CoinSwap comes out ahead. And another benefit of CoinSwap is because it's indistinguishable from all the other transactions, it means if you really want to cheap out one day and just make a regular Bitcoin transaction, your privacy will be improved anyway, because someone who was analyzing this would say, hold on, maybe he's doing a coin swap, maybe he isn't, we don't know. And that kind of, um, that kind of externality, that benefit doesn't happen with equal output coin joins. Uh, so yes, overall they, they'd uh, improve efficiency for minor fees and block space. And I as for a... Schnorr and Taproot, oh, sorry, sorry carry on. No, you continue. I forgot about that okay. part of the question. Uh, so as for Schnorr and Taproot, they, uh, there is a thing. So you can use Schnorr with MuSig to also make two of two multisigs that look exactly like a single sig. Uh, and like there was an idea where we could use that instead of multi-party computation, ECDSA. But uh, in the beginning, there wouldn't actually be much Schnorr being used out there. So we know with SegWit, like it's been three years since SegWit was uh, adopted and maybe 60% of transactions use it. I think I saw a statistic the other day. Um, and SegWit has a huge incentive to actually adopt it because you get cheaper minor fees by adopting it and still only 60% of people adopted it after three years. And Schnorr doesn't have such an incentive. If you use single SIG um, SegWit transactions and you adopt Schnorr, then your minor fees cost the same. There's no uh, incentive to adopt it financially. So in that way, you can expect adoption to be even slower. And that means we'd, we, we may as well use multi-party, you may as well use ECDSA for CoinSwap for now. Uh, and that, that has a nice, that has a benefit in that coin, CoinSwap doesn't need any soft forks to make it happen. There's no way to stop it. Like you can't oppose a soft fork and then that would stop CoinSwap somehow, but it couldn't happen today. Yeah, no, it's, it's nice to know if people do adoption or in, in mass, it would be easy to just implement yeah. it with music. Yeah, but realistically, I think it will take a while. And people who use multi-sig will probably adopt it first because they do have an incentive. But if you're using mm -hmm. single-sig, then there's no, there's no incentive. Uh, um, Matt, did you have a question? Oh, yeah. Uh, so with CoinJoin right now, we have... We have join market um, that does where you have this maker taker model. You have this, it's, it's a, a decentralized model. And then we have uh, these centralized coordinator models uh, with Whirlpool and Wasabi. Um, and, and with those models, you don't have to worry as much about two things. Uh, the communication channel between um, the parties involved in the transaction and the the issue with fidelity using fidelity bonds basically uh like the the sybil attack protection using fidelity bonds um and the denial of service in in a way right so do you do you expect and recently no power made a comment uh the lead dev at wasabi made a comment in regards to I, he seemed confused about the purpose of fidelity bonds to me um if do you do you envision that we'll see these 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 centralized coordinator projects pivot to a coin swap type of situation uh, where where they they run a centralized coordinator that that manages the coin swaps and in that situation they, there's no need for fidelity bonds right? Okay, so um, so the purpose of 
Fidelity bonds are useful when there's a decentralized system where anyone can be a Sybil attacker. So you could just have chain analysis or someone runs loads of bots to do a Sybil attack. Uh, and in a centralized system, that can't happen. That uh, chain analysis or any adversary, they cannot um, become a, a Sybil attacker on Wasabi's or Samurai's coordinator. However, because they're centralized, then Wasabi and Samurai themselves can be the Sybil attacker. And they could do it in a much easier way than is required in join market. Um, because to do, to do a civil attack in join market, you literally have to have 10 or 100 bots. But to do a civil attack in Wasabi, the Wasabi server just has to exclude everyone else except for you. Like, I don't know, maybe they have a court order that says if this transaction output does a coin, coin join, then you have to exclude everyone else and just have your own, your own inputs be that coin join. And then this uh, this court order transaction ideal. I think they're doing a coin join, but actually they've been civil attacked. And yeah. these centralized yeah. coordinators can do that for free. Like there's nothing technically stopping them. Um, right. I mean, it's not goes... to say they're not useful, but they but that that's like you know that's the trust model. There's there's trade offs like those benefits. It well. even goes further. Uh, so then for that, fidelity right? bonds, it won't help them because uh, they it, it can't help them. They only work. It's only useful in a decentralized setting. It, it um, even... As for whether they'd drop, sorry, carry on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I'm just very excited. This is a great chat. Um, I, I just, it even goes further than that because the civil resistance is the fee that's paid to the centralized coordinator. So who's ever running the centralized coordinator doesn't have to pay that fee. So they don't even have to necessarily exclude transactions. Uh, they, they could just sibyl like crazy without ever really, they just pay minor fee. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. So they, like you could say if there's 10 people who want to do a coin join uh, and in, in like the normal way in Wasabi or Samurai, those 10 people would make one coin join. But actually if if the coordinator Sybil attacks all them, then there'd actually be 10 coin joins with one person, one like real person per coin join and everyone else being a Sybil attacker. And they'd earn all the same fees and they'd make the same money. It's just the minor fees would be a bit higher. And as for if they do coin swap, um, I haven't really thought, I've been mostly interested in doing this in a decentralized setting because like I have the view that um, to, to have real privacy, you need censorship resistance because otherwise the censor could just censor you until you reveal your privacy relevant information. So I haven't thought too much about doing consult in a centralized way. I suspect it's not, I'm, I'm not that interested really, but maybe, maybe in future someone could figure out a way to do it. Like, because there is a benefit to the Wasabi and Samurai way of doing things is they have they they have an income they can like make a really they can hire developers and make a really nice wallet that's really you know works really well and has has all the features so there, there's nothing necessary you know there's there's some good things about centralization i don't want to completely disregard it um but it is less good at being private and the communication channel right like that is uh, like so with coin swap what, what is it going to use an is it going to use irc based communication again like with join market? Uh, no, I've been, um, that's part of the design. I've been thinking probably the best way to do it is something similar to BISC, where each maker makes their own tour hidden service, their own onion. And then uh, when a market taker comes along, they connect to each of these onions and download their fees, their coin swap fees and other information like the max coin swap size. Um, and then tour is by default encrypted and it's, it's hidden where the actual service is. Uh, I think that's the best way because, like, Join Market today uses IRC and it, it's not that good. Like, let's be honest, it was I made it right at the beginning and it's not very. Uh, I mean, it, it works, but it, you know, it's a bit centralized. 
That's fascinating. And um, before we get any further, you are accepting donations for this build out of your implementation, correct? Yeah, that's right. So it's it would be decentralized, and there's no there's no way I or anyone else can collect fees to fund development, and it just uh, development happens on like a by donations. So uh, um, I'll say the website I'm using now, which is bitcoinprivacy.me forward slash coinswap hyphen donations. And there people can find uh, Bitcoin addresses that, that go to me if they want to support this work financially. And they can also review it technically if, they, if they're interested, if they have the skills. Yeah. But it's, I'm, I'm trying to make it like an open source, like something like Linux or, some, or Bitcoin Core itself, where it can be a community thing and it could exist exist forever. Like if I ever lose interest, then hopefully it'll still be there and people can still use it to improve their privacy. But for now, I'm committed to making it a reality. Uh, Matt and I were admiring your donation site. It's uh, it's the best donation site I've seen to date. You hit refresh, you get a new, you get a new address right away. Um, very PGB clean, signed. straightforward. PGB signed. Yeah, yeah, that's the stop. Uh, the way it actually works, if anyone... Like if anyone wants to make their own, it's um, I made many many Bitcoin addresses from a from my XPub and then signed them with my PGP key on my own on my own hard drive and then uploaded them all to the server, and then there's just a simple PHP script which uh, goes to a new one every time refresh is hit, and then I have on my full node here in my home it, it just watches all those addresses for when a donation arrives. Uh, I, I was thinking of using BTC Pay Server, but I. Honestly, I thought it would be more fun to do it myself. I probably most people would be better off using BTC Pay Server, but I did it this way. <laughs> I'm sorry, I probably contributed to your need to jump forward a bunch of addresses because I, I was just hitting refresh. That's okay. There uh, is a, a huge, huge, huge amount of them. <laughs> uh, they, they, they don't take much disk space. Like each address is a few. It's like 500 kilobytes. No, sorry, 500 bytes, including the signature. So if you, you know, most of these hosting things give you like gigabytes and gigabytes, you can fill the whole thing up for the addresses. Yeah, they're basically infinite. Like you press F5 all you want. There is, well, you mentioned BTZ Pay, and I was talking to someone about this the other day that no one really discusses it. Uh, and I also didn't really, I, I didn't think about it until this person brought it up because I was trying to get them to add BTC Pay to their site. Um, and they're a very security conscious person. Um, there is a there there is a bit of a man in the middle risk there in terms of is the address shown actually controlled by um, the person you intend to donate to or pay uh, that you you do get around by doing the PGP signed right like I I never really thought about it that way. Yeah, that's true. Although I think a lot of people using BTC Pay the server they'll have HTTPS, and as as long as you trust that whole system, which is more centralized than PGP, but that should, in theory, stop a man in the middle attack. Um, I mean, that's how it works for when you buy things regularly, like on Amazon. They all they all rely on HTTPS for their security. So, um, in theory, it's okay, I guess. <laughs> and it's while we're on the topic of BTC Pay, I think it's a great example of an open source project that's garnered a lot of attention and and support from developers and even grant support from from companies and individuals. So hopefully something yeah, similar will happen to your implementation. Yeah. yeah. I hope so. So are you, are you looking for engineering help before you launch it or will you sort of launch it and then start accepting PRs and, um, yeah, I think I'd be, um, I'm looking for help in review that if, um, 
if people look at the design and if they see any attacks or anything like that, they tell me. Um, and then as soon as I start writing code, I'll I have that idea of release early and release often. So I'll make the like the minimum, you know, minimum minimum viable product that only works on testnet and put that on GitHub and from there iterate. And so hopefully people, if they're interested, they can read the code as early as as early as possible. See, I mean, it was the same with Join Market. Like you can go back to years ago and find the very first testnet Join Market that worked. Um, going through your GitHub here, I notice you have a fork of the user-activated soft fork. Were you maintaining uh, a good? No, I think I added. I added a um, a company that said they would they would use a UASF full node on their on their um, you know for, to accept bitcoins. I don't remember who. I think it was someone who, who like bit refill back then. They were they were quite new and they were one of the people they. They'd run UASF, and then I think there was a Voltoro that uh, they trade gold for Bitcoin. Um, I, I've forgotten exactly. It was a few years ago, but it was something like that. I could probably look at the GitHub and find out who I did. But no, I didn't run the site. I just wrote to PR. Yeah, that was an interesting time in Bitcoin. All right. What uh, do you think we'll have uh, as hard a time getting a soft fork implemented in the future? Is that who knows? To be? Like they. It's really hard to say. Like they, uh, from one from one point of view, you could say that the victory with Segwit means that any other fights there'll be no point in them happening because the other side know they're going to lose. But from the other side, you could say, well, they still caused loads of drama and delayed Segwit a bit, so they might try again anyway. Um, but I think there's a lot back then. Uh, a good thing about now is many more enthusiasts are aware of how important full modes are. And back in 2016 or so, it was. Much less well known as it took. It took like education and took telling the community, and a lot more people know about that. And there's more. There's better technology as well. Easier ways to connect your wallet to your full node. Um, so I think people will like because full nodes are so. They. I, I don't. I mean, it's hard to measure, of course, but I feel like they're more common and they're more aware. There's more awareness how important they are than attacks which depend on their not being full nodes will be less successful. Hopefully. Yeah, it's been great to see the proliferation of out-of-the-box node hardware and better software, uh, things like Raspberry Blitz, um, yeah, yeah. the Noddle. And actually, I'm interested to get your thoughts on the Bitcoin wallet tracker that was released last week. You've, you've worked a lot on the Electrum personal server, and that's been somewhat of a pain in the ass for people who aren't as technically competent as others. Um, this Bitcoin wallet tracker that was released last week yeah, that's no, an electron plugin that lets you connect to your full node what what are your thoughts on that like what are the trade-offs there and, and is it materially better no it, it sounds great to me like there's no i haven't granted i haven't spent much time um i haven't downloaded it or anything like that but uh Sheshek and i talked a bit over irc and twitter and it seems really great like they uh and the idea of having it as a plugin is quite good um uh, for me personally, I always, at least for the way I, I run it myself, is I have a little Raspberry Pi which has the Electrum personal server on it, and then my Electrum connects to that. Uh, and I don't know how that would work if you. So, does Bitcoin Wallet Tracker, I don't know if any of you have run it, but does that mean you need the full node on the same machine? Like, does it need to be on your laptop where your wallet is if it runs with a plugin? Well, you can do both. Uh, but either way, it can, you can do both. Yeah, it could be a okay. drop-in replacement for Electrum personal server where you run it on a dedicated device, or you can uh, just run core on your machine and BWT 
and Electrum, and you're good. Okay, that's great then. Yeah, it seems like the UX uh, around running a full node and connecting to it and actually using it is getting considerably better as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would be good. Have... I should um, I should tell Shashik, but it's it's good to know anyway that it would be good if it was if Tor broadcasting was added. You know this feature where when you click when you click broadcast an Electrum, then the server can broadcast your transaction over Tor instead of using ClearNet. Uh, and that could be good for privacy, so your IP address isn't leaked with broadcasting. Electrum Personal Server does this, and it shouldn't be too hard to add to VWT. Yeah, and it would, that's what's been encouraging about the the node hardware. It's been coming out, too. It's just naturally been running through Tor. So hopefully yeah. stuff like that just makes that just common practice out of the gate. Yeah, yeah, and that would be great. Um. What else are you excited about in the world of Bitcoin or outside of Bitcoin? You've been working on this for, for quite some time. You mentioned you're into gaming. What else uh, What else piques your interest? I haven't actually played not... games for a few years, to be honest. Um, I suppose, I, think, I, I, I mean, I know it's old news, but Lightning is gen just generally exciting. Like, you can send the transaction basically instantly and, uh, you know, for low fees. And I don't think that's really good, <laughs> I guess. I don't know what else. I suppose I've been learning Rust, and that's kind of exciting. New language. Yeah, Rust. A lot of the devs I talk to, just the way they explain it, is just like Rust is more powerful. Like that's what BWT was made with, right? It's yeah, like yeah, plugin. exactly. Yeah, and um, it's more. It's aimed to be a safe. It's aimed to have inherent, inherently safety features, so that it's impossible. Like the compiler won't allow you to do things like. Uh, and I have a memory leak or free null pointers or things like things that happen, things that you have to take care of in C++ and you don't in Rust. At least that's the idea. I haven't learned it properly yet. Hmm. But it's a good thing to aim for. Yeah, it seems, just from what I can tell, it seems like a, a really strong language that you want to be building Bitcoin software with. At least try to have implementations written in it. Yeah. Um, what are right, you guys interested in? Well, uh, I like to surf. I write and talk, and then uh, outside of this, I surf. We're we're very interested in lightning as well. We fall on over. I use lightning every day. I've been uh, actually combining lightning and gaming. The Bitcoin uh, bounty hunter game that allows you to put ads in their game uh, and pay for them via lightning. That's been like one of the coolest things. That's that cool. I've seen in the space recently, so I've been, I've been making sure our ads are sufficiently uh, funded on that game. Um, that, and then I'd like to focus on the adoption side too, and education side. I think the education around Bitcoin has gotten a lot better uh, over the last three years, particularly. And I'm very interested to see if if Bitcoin begins getting more attention in the mainstream. How well. Um, new users will sort of understand the technology and the software available to them uh, once they yeah, discover that's, Bitcoin and that's start definitely using it. Important. For me, I've kind of noticed I'm, I might not be very good at the, uh, oh, what you call it, the, the uh, explaining to noobs because it, it seems like I spend a lot of time with technical details and uh, then it's sometimes hard to dial that down when you talk to people who aren't we need to this stuff. Like I, I kind of noticed that coin software. I'm like, oh, you do this thing and it has a harsh time like contract. And then I guess people would be like, oh, what is that? 
what's a hash <laughs> yeah what's a hash yeah uh no i've i've experienced this too recently i've been going on more you know, one thing i'm very interested in would be remiss of me not to mention is i'm i work for a company that we're mining as well and we're using wasted energy to mine bitcoin particularly on oil and gas fields here in the united states and because of this we've been getting some attention in the oil and gas industry here so i've gone on a couple of oil gas podcasts recently and have had this experience where they're completely new to bitcoin and having to explain it to them when i've been writing to an audience of bitcoiners and running this podcast with other bitcoiners really drives home oh my gosh I, you do need to dumb down some of these concepts and think about the uh the beginner's uh road yeah, right. to understanding bitcoin a good thing for all of us to practice sometimes yeah no it's it's not like, yeah i got it i had that same experience they were like explaining like how does mining work and i was like uh how much do you know about hash cash shot 256 <laughs> proof of work <laughs> like trying to explain difficulty adjustments and i got like yeah, a little yeah. off the rails but that's good um, like the the wasted energy because that energy is basically free isn't it like you um, yeah zero cost so then you just need the asics and you get free money yeah it's so the 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 asics and then the generators too actually consume the energy and convert right, it yeah, to yeah yeah because it, it come, the, doesn't it come off as natural gas that you have to burn or something exactly yeah so yeah. those those are your what factor into your kilowatt per hour cost but even even so you're able to get it down pretty low with these this wasted energy yeah, yeah. What about you, Matt? What are you uh what are you excited about right now outside of coin swaps? Well, I mean I love Bitcoin. Bitcoin is fascinating. People are fascinating. Love talking to people. Um I don't know. Privacy is fucking massive. I think we've been very focused here on education. Uh, we have a long way to go, uh, but I, I do think it's really cool um, how many people are focused on education that aren't scammers, which is, is, is what the in the past, you know, you, you see people come in and they, they go to YouTube and they, they buy the courses on blockchain and stuff like that, um, and you just really hate to see it. Uh, but now, you know, you have like Stefan Levera, you have Catan that works with him at Ministry of Nodes, you have 6102 Bitcoin. There's like this whole sub-industry that's developing of, of Bitcoin education uh, that really seems to be focusing on, on the right principles. Um, in terms of privacy, I, I think we're starting to, it's, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by privacy, not just on a Bitcoin level. Hello? Um, and I just think it's it's we're starting to hit a critical mass here where people are realizing people are realizing why it's important because their privacy is getting trampled on left and right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, another thing that's very interesting right now is the state of the world, geopolitics, China taking Hong Kong. Obviously, we got um, some interesting things happen here in the United States. Like, is Bitcoin ready for? Uh, not mass adoption, but considerably more adoption in the face of, of people maybe needing to turn to it. Um, that's another thing that I'm very curious to see. Like if, if Bitcoin does get a lot of attention soon, like is the protocol ready to onboard a bunch more people? 
Yeah, that's right. There's, uh, I don't know how well known this is, but back in 2017-ish, I was uh, reading, you know, there's the Reddit, subreddit for the Syrian civil war. Back then it was a big thing. It was Aleppo and Damascus and all that stuff. And I came across a couple of people who were actually trading Bitcoin there because they, it, it was for that, it was because there was huge inflation in, um, in Syria and they were trying, they were just, you know, dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin essentially. And they had, uh, one of them mentioned this thing on Reddit that a great thing of Bitcoin is you can, if, if you end up being a refugee, because there's a war and if you have to like go to Turkey or something, then you can take your Bitcoins with you, just memorize them in your head. Um, and that, like that, that's kind of, that's sort of what we're here for, aren't we? We're helping people, one of the use cases, we're helping people store their wealth if they need to, if they need to protect it from being seized. Yeah, that was a real life yeah. example of it. And there it was, I was kind of surprised because I was um, thinking maybe they're going to, you know, didn't need this explaining, but they seem to just get it. They're like, you have a wallet and then you send it to this person and they give you cash and it, it just works. Once you need it, it's pretty obvious, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the hard part seems to be understanding what money is. Like, you have this thing called Bitcoin and it's like money. And once you understand that, then in theory, it's just clicking buttons, right? You click send, you click receive. Write down yeah. seed phrase, hopefully. It's crazy to see how how much utility Bitcoin provides, depending on your different use case. You just described Syrian escaping to Turkey, keeping a, a seed phrase in there in their head to escape um, terrorist and a, a dictatorship. But then like I've, I've talked with Matt Alborg, who's doing a lot of research on how people are using it in Venezuela and Argentina, trying to escape hyperinflation and using Bitcoin as a rail to send money so that they can get dollars. It's also, yeah. Um, that's the beauty of Bitcoin, right? It's just this apolitical messaging system. And if you can download the software and interact with it, you can participate and it doesn't know what you're using it for or how you're using it or why you're using it. It yeah, just works. That, that would be one one place where privacy is important because if you're, suppose you're the Syrian guy and you want to cross the border in Turkey and they say, hey, aha, you've got, uh, we see your, your mobile phone data. Look, you've been using a Bitcoin wallet, you know, hand it over, son. You don't want to be in that situation. And that is actually one thing I'm concerned about with how does no... There's no sol solution for lightweight wallet sync. Like these wallets on people's smartphones, they all connect to some server and tell them their addresses. Um, it, it's probably okay now. I'm sure the Turkish border guards don't, you know, can't do this. But in theory, they could. In theory, they could have some something that scans and tell, you know, scans the, figures out the internet service provider and figures out what your Bitcoin addresses are. That will probably happen one day. Like if if we're we're in early days and eventually the authorities will or anyone who wants to steal your Bitcoins will learn about this. So that should be something yeah, we should fix. We need a way for, on smartphones, people can synchronize their wallets anonymously, and I don't think that exists now. Would something like AB Core help that, or are you still... Yeah, yeah, possibly. You could just have full nodes on a, on a, on a smartphone. That could that'd be one way. Maybe smartphones get powerful enough and bandwidth gets cheap enough and it could happen. I think there's a long way. Like you need a few, another few doublings of Moore's law, at least for bandwidth, to make that really make that possible. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. That's another thing yeah. that I like to observe is how people extrapolate the current state of Bitcoin and just technology in general and how how computers work. They extrapolate that to the future and sort of discount potential 
innovations and efficiencies that could happen. Um, yeah. A lot of linear thinking. Yeah, but the thing with Bitcoin is the blockchain is linear. Like every block, you generally get new addresses that are mined into the blockchain, and any wallets would have to synchronize them somehow. Like somehow figure out, you know, these are my addresses that come from my seed phrase, and I want to figure out if they have transactions on them, and how do I do that? I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Just think about it some more. I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. I love that. Do you have any thoughts on Lightning as a privacy tech? Oh yeah, it's uh, great. Like this idea of not having your transaction on on chain is basically a revolution. Like all the all the things we talked about earlier, the transaction graph and the common input ownership heuristic and uh, things like address reuse and change address detection, they just don't exist in Lightning. There are no change addresses. There are no there are no uh, you know multiple inputs into a transaction. Uh, it's it's all off chain. Okay, there's other attacks, but they just the fact that the the transactions aren't visible to everyone, I think, is a huge help. So yeah, absolutely, it's a great privacy tech somehow. Although it still it still has the thing that the channels are on the blockchain. You could analyze someone figured out your channel because your Lightning wallet also has to um, message a third party server to figure out what your chat what your channel UTXOs are. Then someone could analyze based on that. Yeah, and we'll see how that goes. I don't know. But the, like the building blocks are there to solve it somehow. Yeah, the, it shows promise is like kind of my perspective, yeah, right? Yeah. Especially on like the receiving side, uh, the privacy, like it leaves a lot to be desired on the privacy front if you're receiving lightning transactions. Yeah. It depends. A lot of the stuff is with your threat model. Like you can, uh, I'm sometimes asked, like, if I do this, will I be private? Will I have enough privacy? And then the always the thing I answer is, okay, who are you actually hiding from? Like if you're, if you're hiding from some, whatever Turkish border guard or someone who doesn't really then then you don't you know or just some looter then you won't yeah you know, probably have to try too hard but if you're hiding from I know the United States government or something you have to try a lot harder and they because they I mean, the U.S. government they have the power to presumably we believe to look at every internet packet out there of which I don't know Turkish border guard doesn't well, I uh, think so they just made a law here what what's that tr- what does the law say they're trying to make it a law where they can get access to to all of your internet data. Um, they have indiscriminate rights too, to yeah. check your messages on social media and all that stuff. Yeah, and the whole social media thing is a big privacy leak, really. Like, it's amazing people give away all that information just for nothing. Yeah, that's, that's another thing that sort of excites me about Lightning, this idea of LN URL auth, if we were able to instead of giving username and passwords to companies that they then store on their own databases, which are highly susceptible to getting hacked. You have an authorization flow from uh, a node that you control in public keys within that node. Your public key being signed by yeah. your private keys is basically authentication. Yeah, so you use your private key service. as a login. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, that excites me as well. Sort of re-architecting that interaction between user and service provider on the internet would be huge. Yeah, although I'm not sure. And yeah, like it's good for privacy that you don't have usernames and passwords, but there's still people um, like you go on Facebook and people upload pictures of themselves, which can be 
can be sent to facial recognition algorithms and things like that. And that, that won't change if people don't use passwords anymore, if they use a private key instead. No, we say it many times on this on this podcast, we're all face fucked. Yeah, if you're not yeah. doing it on social media, there's so many cameras in the cities now that it's not even... Well, there may be with the... Tracking devices in our pockets. That yeah, well. that's right. Although maybe one thing with the um, with the pandemic is if more people wear face masks, you must have heard of that. Wearing face masks can help break facial recognition. Well, in America, we have this weird phenomenon. Well, at least before the rioting happened, uh, there was this weird phenomenon where people were saying once face masks became basically mandatory at the state level. Uh, it was an act of defiance not to wear a face mask, which I thought was a really interesting um, psychological experiment. Uh, and I, I said to Marty, I was like, I wonder like, if they mandated end-to-end encryption, if people would just send plain text messages as like an act of defiance. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, it's funny how psychology is sometimes. Right. It's fu- I mean... And it's funny how that, that ex, that's an example of like mass hysteria coming into play. And it's been a topic too, obviously with the riots. Yeah. People are being manipulated by the media and the governments to, to act in certain ways and they seem to be pretty pretty easily manipulated these days. Yeah. What most people don't realize is in New York, you know, since the eighteen hundreds it's been illegal to be with more than two people with face masks on in public. Uh, really? Yeah, so this is like the first real protest we've had, in New York City at least, where you're you're legally allowed and actually compelled to wear face masks to the protest. It's an interesting thing to think about. Why was that? Uh, I suppose it was never enforced, this law. Uh, it was enforced selectively, just like all the good laws. Yeah, are. yeah. You know. Just when you need an excuse. Yeah, I've worn a face mask in New York City for 10 years. Never got stopped once. But, you know, I'm a white person and I wasn't doing, you know, specific things that yeah, they decided yeah. to enforce it on. Yeah. You weren't getting stopped and frisked. Not once. No. Um, yeah, there's so many, so many things to think about. But luckily... Luckily, Bitcoin exists. I'd be a lot uh, more pessimistic if Bitcoin didn't exist. And luckily, we have people like you, Chris, working to make this better. And not only for yourself, but for everybody. And the work you're doing is extremely important. And I'm very happy you're doing it and very appreciative of, of all the effort that you put into this. Yeah, thanks for saying so. That's, uh, I hope you, yeah, I hope you realize that people appreciate your work and it it's not, does not go unnoticed. Very grateful. Yeah, thank you. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. We we blocked off an hour and a half here. We're coming to the end of that, if you factor in our pre-conversation and, and what we've recorded already. Is there any parting notes, final thoughts you you want to leave the freaks before we wrap up here? Well, no, I just for the coin swap thing, that if you can review it technically, uh, then do that. That would be appreciated. And if you um, want to support me with a donation, that would be very helpful as well uh, just those things really and you know think about how you think about your privacy because it's a you, like it it helps everyone should people go to your github to help 
review or they have to reach out personally no it's on the uh the actual design the the mailing list email okay. and the gist so that, that's the okay, design the gist. that has all the building blocks okay all right so go check that out we will link to the gist and your donation page in the show notes again yeah. chris thank you for what you do really appreciate you take some time to come uh explain this stuff me. too yeah anytime we should do this again hopefully when you get closer to actually uh releasing uh, yeah. a workable implementation we can we can link up again and, and talk about how it actually works and get people using it yeah that sounds good anything from you matt yes please we'd love to have you back yeah sounds good all Thanks right for again have a good day you as well that's all we got this week freaks peace and love Ta-ki!